Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the first season of the War on Cancer podcast. This is the podcast where we aim to learn more about life with cancer, both during and after treatment, as loved ones, and how it affects us all. My name is Sebastian, and together with Fabian, my best friend, survivor, and co-founder of War on Cancer, we will be inviting experts and professionals and covering topics that are relevant for everyone that has been or is affected today. Our ambition is to shed a new light on the many aspects of cancer, and we hope that you will enjoy learning together with us. So Fabian, this month marks the five year anniversary from you being diagnosed with leukemia back in 2015. Five years, I'm, it's, it feels, uh, wow, it feels strange, wonderful, and very peaceful at the same time. I mean, what was it? It was the 2nd of July, 2015 that I was diagnosed. Yeah. I know I've said it numerous times throughout this podcast, but it it really feels like looking at a different person, who I am today versus who I was back then. But yeah. Yeah, I, I think I look at a different person as well. And uh, I must say that I'm super excited about doing this podcast, not only because of the guests that we have, but also because it marks the five-year anniversary. And to be honest, I, I really thought that my best friend was going to die. And today we sit here, we have a company we're trying and doing everything we can to change the world. And there is something beautiful to that, I think. There is. And, and I mean, speaking of being thankful, I mean, I'm, I'm thankful for, for many things. First of all, I'm thankful for all of the progress that has been made within cancer research. I mean, had I been diagnosed with leukemia 20 years ago rather than five years ago, I wouldn't have lived today. We have cancer research to thank for that. I'm also thankful for 
the fact that I took the step and started sharing my story in a blog and coincidentally then together with you founded Born on Cancer and, and this whole wonderful journey that we've been on because it's really saved my mental health. And together it's made me thrive through going through cancer. That's very nice to hear. Obviously, we, we already touched upon the subject and topic of today, which is cancer research. And it, just to reiterate what you just previously mentioned, you have sort of cancer research to thank for surviving and perhaps uh, your writing and your, you sharing your own insights to thank for feeling uh, okay on a, on a mental health level, right? And today also marks the day where we will enable a feature on the War on Cancer app, which will enable more people to feel what you felt in sharing their insights for a good purpose, basically. So uh, we are releasing a new feature called Health Studies, which will basically enable our users to participate in questionnaires aimed at better understanding patient needs and wants, and using that together with the life science sector in order to improve patient care and cancer research. So... With us today for this episode, we are going to invite one of our employees, Lisa Arnhem Dahlström. She has an extensive background in patient-reported data. We're going to dive into what that actually means. We'll let her tell us about that instead of the other way around. And she now works as the head of real-world evidence and health studies at War on Cancer. So I'm super excited about this episode. I hope you are as well. So am I, certainly. And I hope that we together with our listeners, can journey through the world of cancer research and make people feel a bit more comfortable around the topic. Yes. I'm really excited to be chatting with Leeson. I hope that we, together with her and the listeners, can journey through the world of cancer research and understand a little bit of what's really going on in there. Yeah, very good. So shall we get down to business? Let's get down to business. Welcome, listen. We're so happy to have you as a part of this season of the War on Cancer podcast. Thank you, and I'm very happy to be here. So today we're going to try to make sense of one of the perhaps most complex topics when it comes to cancer, which is cancer research and also learning from patient insights. But before we start, do you mind telling us a little bit more about who you are and a little bit about your background? Yes. So my name is Lisen. I'm from Stockholm. And by training, I'm an epidemiologist and scientist, also a yoga teacher and a mother of two, among many other things. Okay, and so epidemiology, that's a term that we've come across multiple times during the past couple of years. And it's a term that I think needs a brief explanation. What is epidemiology and what does an epidemiologist do? Yes, of course. So epidemiology is a Greek word, meaning, in essence, the study of diseases in populations. So not on an individual level, but really among many people at the same time. So with different methods, we try to do estimations on how common a disease is, like we do now with the corona, for example. And we try to determine risk factors for different diseases and with that, use that information to improve treatments and prevention of various types of diseases. 
Very interesting. But how did you become an epidemiologist? And more importantly, perhaps, why? Yeah, it's not like I had that as a life goal. It was really more by chance and opportunities rather than pure determination. Since I, most of my life, have been a kind of person who knows what I don't want to do rather than what I want to do. So I did my bachelor's in biomedical sciences, and my main interest was infectious diseases and really how to prevent infectious diseases. And that's where the population level comes in and the epidemiology. So um, that interest took me to doing a PhD at Karolinska Institute on um, a virus called human papillomavirus that causes cervical cancer. So my main goal with that thesis work was to look at prevention of cervical cancer through knowing more about the infection. And that's how I, in the end, maybe left my interest of infections and rather increased my interest of epidemiological methods. Okay, and uh, human papilloma virus, that's HPV, right? Yes, that's HPV. Very good. And uh, what was your results in that research? Oh, <laughs> 20 years later, let me see. <laughs> um, well, I think we generated some insights to how important HPV is in the infection and looking at immunological responses. But I would say that that finding or that work took me to the next step, which was really working with the HPV vaccine and, and uh, looking at how effective and good it is on a population-based level. Okay, and this was at Karolinska Institute, yes. right? Yes, uh, Which is one of the biggest medical universities in Sweden, for all of you listeners out there. And after that, you worked as an epidemiologist at uh, one of the biggest contract research organizations uh, called IQVIA, and later on at Celgene, one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world. So you worked in pretty much all parts of the spectrum when it comes to using patient health data sources. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you did at those organizations? Yes. So IQVIA, as you said, is a contract research organization. And when you hear that name, you may think of clinical trials. I did not really work with clinical trials, but rather with what we call real-world evidence or real-world data. So compared to clinical trials, that is not collected in a typical controlled setting as clinical trial data is. And this data you use to answer questions like I did in my previous research at Karolinska, like how effective is a particular drug? You can look at adverse events, meaning side effects of a drug in populations. And you can answer questions like uh, how cost effective a drug is as well. I think a lot of our listeners wants to know or perhaps wants to get a, a, perhaps a brief explanation of what a clinical trial is as well. Yes. So a clinical trial is the, the study you need to do in order to get a medicine or a drug or a treatment. It doesn't need to be a, a drug. It can also be a way you treat people. You need to study that in a controlled setting in a smaller population before it gets approved and you can use it, as you say, on the market. So it's really necessary steps in order to make your drug or treatment approved. And this can happen in different phases. So you have phase two and phase three, and you look for different things in these phases of a clinical trial. I remember when I was diagnosed with uh, leukemia, I was told pretty much right away that I was going to be put on a clinical trial called NOFO08, which was, in essence, the main sort of thing with the clinical trial was they treated everybody up to 30 uh, according to the same chemo dosages as you give to children with leukemia. 
And from what I gathered around the, the clinical trial is that they have substantially increased the survival rates as a consequence to it. Um, I'm not sure which phase it was. As far as I'm concerned, it's been going since 08, so 2008. So perhaps it was probably one of the later stages. Maybe so. So the phase two of a clinical trial is a lot about, so you don't include that many people in the phase two. And you, you want to make sure that the drug or the treatment that you're using basically doesn't kill you. <laughs> and then when you know that, uh, so that's what you do in the phase one and phase two. And when that's sorted, you can move on to phase three. And then you include more people over a longer time period. And you start looking for those efficacy measures to see that it's actually working in combination with <laughs> that it's safe. So these are the two main things that you look for in a clinical trial, that it's working better than the comparison option, whatever that is, and that it's safe or safer, but at least not less safe. And a follow-up question to clinical trials, because we hear from patients pretty much all the time, people that have been on clinical trials, people that have not been accepted or have been eligible for participating in a clinical trial. And you hear different sort of voices. Some are pro-clinical trials and some are against it. So what does a clinical trial entail today? Because from what I've heard and what I think I know is that in today's society, if you're part of a clinical trial, you're actually getting newer and more sort of updated care. Is there any truth to that? As I said, I'm not a clinical trial expert, <laughs> so this is really difficult for me to answer. So yes, I mean, as you say, Fabian, in the trial that you were participating in, you didn't get a new drug or you actually don't know if you got the drug or if you got a placebo or if you got the old treatment regime because you're not supposed to know that while the trial is running and the doctor is not supposed to know either because then you can introduce what you call biases but that you subjectively describe something that's not really happening. So yes, it can be new drugs, but it can also be that you're trying to treat in a different way compared to what you would then call the standard care of treatment. And for listeners out there, and something that I learned only a year ago is that if you're actually put in the placebo group in a clinical trial, that doesn't mean you're getting sugar pills. That means you're getting standard of care, which is important. So, yes, that's very important. I yeah. mean, it wouldn't be ethically sound to give you a sugar pill. When you're sick. No. Right. And it's really important also to actually compare with what you're already having and using. Yeah. Comparing to standard mm. of care. Uh, that's great information. Thank you very much. And then you worked at Celgene. What did you do at one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world? Yeah, so I continued working with real-world evidence and epidemiology, building a real-world evidence function for their Nordic branch. And at Celgene, which is now part of BMS, which is also a pharmaceutical company, uh, but at the time Celgene, they are very much specialized in uh, blood cancers, multiple myeloma, for example, and lymphoid diseases. And that's when we first met because we partnered up with some of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world to try and understand how we could utilize a platform like War on Cancer to spearhead the pharmaceutical R&D process. Mm. So we met a couple of times and now you work at War on Cancer as the head of real world evidence and health studies. Can you tell us from your perspective why you decided to join War on Cancer? Yes, I mean, there were not only one thing, of course, one being that I really liked your mission and vision and your dynamic approach 
to um, basically to everything. <laughs> it's such a positive spirit in combination with that I most of my life worked in very large organizations and finally I'm starting to understand that maybe this is not what really fits my personality and War on Cancer is a smaller company so something clicked also on that level but mainly is really in line with your mission and vision that what you want to do is to help people so it's not only collecting a lot of data and share that but really on a personal level to to be part of helping other people. That is something that um, really attracted me. Diving into uh, sort of the topic of today, which is cancer research. And I hope you can clarify some of the things that we're going to ask you. And first of all, I mean, cancer has a very long history, if you look at research. It was first, what I think, discovered in old Egypt on ancient writings. And uh, by that time, they didn't really understand what it was. But in order to treat people, they tried to either burn the tumor or cut it away, basically operate. And since then, we've obviously understood more about cancer. Up until, I would say, almost 40, 50 years ago, pretty much everyone died. It was a very deadly disease. And then in the 1940s, we discovered or developed chemotherapy, a drug that hopefully kills the tumor before it kills the person because it sort of attacks all cells in the body. And we tried to introduce something that would cure everyone of cancer. We have moved on from that to understanding even more about cancer, which has resulted in immunovaccines, amongst other things, targeted therapies, CAR-T, etc. And my question to you is, what's the next step of cancer research and what's the goal here? I think that we need to start to think about that cancer is not just one disease, it's many diseases. It has a common feature that it's abnormal cell growth, but it kind of stops there because each cancer type has a different etiology, which means that they arise from different cells in the body and they have different risk factors. They behave differently in how they grow, how you can prevent them, how you can treat them. They have different prognosis and so on. So um, even though we have all these treatments that you mentioned, they may work on some cancers, they may not work on all cancers. And add to that, that you as a person, if you're diagnosed with cancer, will respond differently when being treated compared to the next person. Based on who you are. Yes. Yeah. So it's very individual. So even though we have answered a lot of questions with cancer research, there are still many more questions to answer. And today we have two out of three people that survive cancer and within the not too distant future, more or less everyone will survive cancer, as in cancer will turn more into a chronic disease that people will be able to live with. And of course, the demands from patients will shift. Perhaps historically it's been survival. If I was diagnosed 30 years ago, I would have been ultra happy and also lucky if I even survived. But now with, as mentioned, so many people surviving, we believe that demands will shift tremendously. Patients are becoming more vocal and they demand to be treated more like their individual persons rather than patients, meaning 
each patient will want to be treated and seen for who they are and for their individual needs. Totally agree. This is what we call patient-centric care, which is something that's becoming more and more important now when, as you say, cancer is becoming chronic because it puts totally new demands on not only the patient who's going to survive, maybe with new diets or physical therapy and so on, but also on healthcare support functions like rehab, family and friends and so on. So in order to answer these questions about how do we help the patient in the long run, or how does the patient help him or herself in the long run, we need to um, collect data that comes directly from the patient and not only from healthcare. Patient insights is really, really important here. And this is what we call patient-reported data, or as I think I prefer call it, self-reported data, because you're not always a patient. It's yourself and your insights that are really, really crucial here. Okay, and patient-reported data, and you mentioned before I mean, as an epidemiologist, I'm sure you've come across the term real-world evidence and other sort of wordings or explanations for data that is derived from the patient themselves. But is there one way of describing that in a singular word? Can that be self-reported or patient-reported data? Yes, I mean, real-world evidence can also be other types of data sources. So I would say that patient-reported data and self-reported data can be part of that umbrella structure from real-world data. But (laughs) because self-reported data can also be collected in clinical trials. But in essence, what we're talking about here is that self-reported data and patient insights is something that is critical to collect, to analyze, and to use in order to be able to deliver patient-centric and value-based care. Definitely, in combination with other types of data, of course. Very good. And Fabian, I want to hear your reflection on this. How do you perceive that your needs and wants was accommodated by the healthcare system when you were diagnosed and during your treatment? Well, I know for a fact that they weren't because nobody ever asked me a single question about my preferences with regards to how often I wanted to talk to someone, how often I wanted to exercise or see a physical exercise therapist or anything like that. I mean, that is one of the big problems of today and why it's so important to have this form of information and data from patients because today two out of three survives cancer and tomorrow it's going to be basically within a not too distant future it will be more or less everyone so the demands from patients on being treated like individuals rather than just one and the same will substantially increase going forward. So Fabian, what you're describing is what we call patient-centric care, which is something that's becoming more and more important in care of chronic conditions. And as we mentioned, that cancer is becoming a chronic condition. And in order to make the best of patient-centric care, is not only to listen to you as a person, but actually to collect all these insights from patients, so many patients at the same time, uh, in order to, to be able to do something about it. And there are different things that it's important for. So as you said, to get that physical therapy that you need, diet, but also something that's very important is to understand a patient's expectation of a treatment and the healthcare. Uh, because if we know that, then we can also do the things that you just described we're missing and also help patients to adhere to treatment because that's 
a, a huge issue uh, sometimes because the treatments are so invasive and really physically demanding on you. So we need to find better ways how to get people to continue with their treatment regime. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So Fabian, that's an obvious problem. And besides from the healthcare basically being blindfolded towards patient needs and wants, what more problems are there and how can patient insights? Yeah, so um, patient insights, or maybe we should talk a bit about terminology. So we call it patient reported data or patient reported outcomes is also expressions for patient insights. And um, maybe we could also use the word self-reported data because maybe you're not a patient all the time or want to feel like a patient all the time, but your insight is still very, very important. And we've mentioned a few things where your insights can help a lot. But another thing which is um, related is that uh, in clinical trials, we also collect self-reported data to look at efficacy and side effects, but also quality of life questions. And clinical trials today always <laughs> is something that's very expensive to do. And there's a lot of um, bureaucracy around clinical trials because there are a lot of regulations in order to keep the patient safe all the time. So uh, clinical trials, when you talk about what problems are, it can sometimes be very difficult for a patient to find a relevant clinical trial or for the doctor to find a clinical trial. 
So that's a, an issue. Yeah, and I've read some statistics about clinical trials. So there are more than 37,000 active clinical trials every year in oncology, which is cancer research. And more than 60% of these are so-called non-performing sites, meaning that they don't conclude anything. And the number one factor for a non-performing site in clinical research in oncology is the fact that they don't meet recruitment criteria. Essentially, they don't find enough patients in order to start the clinical trial and evaluate the results. Why is that, do you think? As I said, bureaucracy, there is a lot of documents <laughs> and rules about a clinical trial. But it's also if, let's say, the performing site is at um, one unit at a Stockholm hospital, then maybe someone who lives in north of Sweden will never hear of that clinical trial and that doctor will never hear of that clinical trial as well. So a bit of a misinformation or lack of information going on. So I guess I was lucky to be put in a clinical trial, but just to correct me if I'm wrong, but if I'm diagnosed with a uh, problematic or rare form of disease and the doctor tells me there's nothing they can do about it, there's actually a chance that there is a clinical trial somewhere in the world that is looking for me, but I'm never going to be informed about it. Yes, you're absolutely right. And it's very much up to you to find it. Okay, that is very sad. Yeah, so that can actually happen. And today we really don't have any um, good infrastructure for people to find clinical trials or for doctors to know about which clinical trials are out there. So we've covered a lot of topics and I would say problem areas when it comes to self-reported and patient-reported data. And obviously it's very evident that a lot of the problems that we find in the life science sector today could potentially be solved by collecting and understanding patient insights to a much higher degree. And that is why we're introducing the concept of health studies on the War on Cancer app, which will enable our users to share insights with the life science sector in order for them to improve both cancer treatment and cancer care. And I just want to come in and just tell an anecdote of how it came to be and how we came to understand that this was something that we could do. And a few years ago, when we had just launched the first version of War on Cancer, which was in essence a blog portal, I was one and a half years into my cancer treatment, as in the, in the midst of taking a lot of chemo. And we, we started to get invited to several international conferences uh, covering healthcare, medtech. And, and, and the first one was actually the European Medtech Forum, which is one of the larger medtech conferences in the world. And, and neither me or Sebastian had a, any form of history in the healthcare space. So we actually had to Google what medtech meant on the way down. And I remember walking up to those stages and we sort of, I guess, we were slightly naive and, and I guess at the same time disruptive because we didn't pretend to know more than we did. We just said, we're, we're going to try and solve the mental health problem through storytelling with the Born Cancer platform. And um, at these conferences, I remember specifically getting in touch with, with one person who came up to us after we held our speech and said, do you understand the full potential of what you're building? And we, I guess, a bit naively said, yes, we're, we're trying to solve the mental health problem. Uh, and he said, well, that's awesome. I keep doing that. But what you're also doing has a unique potential because you are, in fact, 
focusing on the patients and the people affected by cancer's needs when building the War on Cancer platform. And you have the potential to unite patients on a global level. And by doing so, you have a unique opportunity here to also help the life science sector by gathering insights together with your users. And when we heard that, we, of course, didn't know much about patient-reported data, but we started looking into it and quickly understood the real value and potential of war on cancer. So we're super happy to have Lisen with us, of course, with her extensive background. So do you want to share with our listeners what health studies will actually entail? Yes, of course. So, I mean, it's quite simple. It's a feature in the app. We will be able to invite users of the app to participate in questionnaire studies of different sorts. So it may be about, as we just spoke about, treatment adherence, but it may also be about quality of life questions. It may be about side effects of a drug, or as we also mentioned about how you expect healthcare to behave towards you or what you expect from a specific treatment. So all these questions can be answered through your insights and in different types of studies that we will perform using the app. And the good part here as well is that we're inviting basically everyone that has a connection to cancer. So all diagnosis groups, all treatment stages of those different diagnosis groups, survivors or people after treatment, but also loved ones. So we can collect and gather insights to a much higher degree than most others. And um, we have one project that we're launching uh, as soon as possible, which will be either in June or July, together with uh, one of the biggest hospitals in Sweden. Yes, exactly. So we're working with Karolinska Institute to answer some questions about how people with cancer or affected by cancer, how the corona crisis actually affect them. So in, in different ways, asking questions about if healthcare has been a support through this crisis, if you could get your treatments on, on time, specific questions about anxiety and worrying during the crisis. And this is the whole essence of War on Cancer. We're trying to unite the voices of patients across the globe because i think most of our listeners can relate to having voiced their opinions either to their doctor or to some part of the healthcare system and uh, they haven't really gotten a proper reply or seen any change we truly believe that by uniting patients on a national level, on a global level, on a regional level, we can really voice the opinions of the patients to a degree to where decision makers in healthcare, in cancer research, etc., to such a high degree that they can't simply ignore it. Uh, and that's the promise of War on Cancer. We will let your voice get heard. That's actually why we've chosen to call ourselves War on Cancer. It started out as the name of my blog, and we decided to keep it as the name of the platform and app as well, because this is our attempt at continuing to find the solution of how lives of cancer patients can be improved, and our attempt at collectively declare war on a disease that affected so many lives globally. But instead of using weapons, as they do in most wars, 
we're using patient insights to fight the disease. So everybody can contribute in that sense. Indeed. So let's recognize the elephant in the room, which is data privacy and data security, because it boils down to we will become a platform that collects patient-reported data in the form of patient insights that we will then share with selected partners of the life science sector in order for them to use this to improve cancer care and cancer research. So it's of utmost importance that we collect data in an ethically and morally correct way, right? Exactly. And I think, at least from my experience as a cancer patient, if I were to share my data, I would want to know that, first of all, none of my personal identifiable data would be shared. But secondly, and more importantly, that I would want to know that my data would be used for something good. Yes, totally agree with both of you that this is very, very important. So I think I would like to start off with saying that the main reason for doing this research is really for our users and the patients and cancer research and not to collect data for life science sector per se. So this is really, really important, which means that if someone from life science sector, so life science sector could be um, an academic institution, it can be the healthcare, and it can also be pharma industry company. So all of these are welcome to suggest a study that they want to perform. But we will not just go, yeah, sure, let's do it. We will carefully go through the type of questions they want to ask and the purpose of the study and what the data in the end will be used for. So it's our decision if the study will actually be performed on the app or not. And then moving on from that, participation in a study is voluntary. No one is forced to participate. And you can use the app and the network without participating in a health study. So it's all optional. And if you get invited to a study, if you decide to participate with your insights, you will fill in a so-called informed consent. So you will consent to sharing your data and you will also know what the data will be used for. And when I say sharing data, because that's also a bit of a provocative thing to say, it doesn't mean that we collect data and then share your personal and individual answers to anyone in the life science sector. It will always be in an aggregated format, which means that we collect data from many people at the same time, and the data will be presented in forms of frequencies or graphs or this kind of data, but doesn't say Fabian, a man, and he doesn't like his doctor. (laughs) So (laughs) we will never (laughs) share that type of information. Exactly. So if you participate in a health study, for example, Because a a hospital in Sweden or the UK would like to know how are our patients actually experiencing care. We will not single you out and say this person said that. But instead we will give them the summary of the results. Because there is no purpose in doing that. So that's a very, very important thing to say. And then when it comes to data security, we are, um, as a health tech company, of course, doing everything we can to have highest quality of our data security. And of course, when it comes to data privacy, it also entails data security, which is becoming more and more of a hot topic because we read about data breaches 
pretty much every day. And we also read about bad actors using data in a not so good way. So it's important for us to let our listeners and our users know that we take this in the most serious manner. We're working together with the biggest tech companies in order to ensure data security and data privacy. And of course, uh, we abide by the regulatory frameworks of GDPR and HIPAA. And in those countries where GDPR and HIPAA is not applicable, we will, of course, be compliant with those countries' regulations. So really what we're trying to do here is to put the power in the sense of control of the data back into the hands of where they belong, with the owner, with the person affected by cancer. And really what we are hoping to replicate here is the experience that I had when I was sharing data in the form of my blog, because my feeling whenever I made one post and receiving hundreds of messages back from people who thanked me or shared their stories with me was a sense of meaning. It provided me with a sense of purpose and it helped me to, to answer one of the biggest questions that I know many cancer patients and people affected have, which is why. For me, it became evident that there was a meaning to my cancer journey and there was a reason for me being diagnosed. It was for me to be able to help others. And this is what we're hoping to do with this feature in the app for everybody who shares or decides to provide their insights, for them to feel as well that their journey matters and there is a meaning to why they were diagnosed. But we've been talking about a different partners within the life science sector, meaning academia, research, uh, and pharmaceutical companies. And, and I think a lot of our listeners might feel a bit unsure about the role that pharmaceutical companies play. Why do you think that is? Having worked at a pharmaceutical company, would you be able to just sort of briefly explain what they're all about and why do you think that there is a bit of an uncertainty about that industry? Mm. I think um, people may be hesitant because pharma industries have a lot of power. And um, because many people think it's all about money, but the role of a pharma company is really to to bring novel ideas about treatments and drugs into the market. And it wouldn't be possible without all that money. And, and pharma industry is, uh, I would say, one of the most regulated industries in the world. So whatever they do needs to be compliant to so many different rules and regulations in order to be able to perform studies, in order to contribute with data to healthcare and so on. I agree. And um, throughout the years of, of building War on Cancer, we have come across organizations and also patients that have asked us, why do you work with the pharmaceutical companies? And for us, it's, it's evident that the, the pharma industry is a central part of the whole cancer ecosystem. I think a lot of us that have been through treatment here can agree that if it weren't for the drugs produced by the pharmaceutical industry, uh, many of us would not survive. I am thankful for the drugs that I was provided because I think that's the reason why I live today. And uh, with that in mind, I think what needs to be addressed is rather the, the disconnect between patients and the pharmaceutical companies. And that is one of the disconnects that we are trying to address. And that's really what we're all about. And before we say thank you to Leeson, we're going to do what we always do, which is play What Would You Rather? And just to give you the ground rules, so we're going to give you What Would You Rather? questions. You have two options. You have to answer quickly, and we're going to ask you why you chose as you did. 
Okay? That doesn't sound like an option. It sounds like mandatory. It is mandatory, <laughs> indeed. Okay, so Fabian, do you want to kick it off? Absolutely. So, listen, I want to stay around the topic that we have covered today, which is research, insights, and data. So my question to you is, what would you rather? Either find out that the world we live in is, in fact, a virtual reality, as in we are in the matrix, and you are the only one that knew. or that everybody else in the world knew that the world was a virtual reality and you were the only one who didn't know. Oh, wow. There's no way out here. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if I have to be fast, then I would, I think, prefer the first one as I am a bit of a control freak. So for that reason, it's, yeah. it's better for me to know than not knowing. But I understand, I understand <laughs> the consequences of that, but... I think that would be my answer. I think we are in option two. I think I'm the only one that doesn't realize. And maybe you're just... Exactly. We're all, we're all playing the Sebastian <laughs> game. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> and that concludes the episode. So thank you very much, Lisen, for being such a great guest on this show. We'll see you in the office in five minutes. <laughs> and no, but seriously, you provided us with many insights and hopefully we have explained a lot of different concepts in a way that a lot of our listeners will be able to understand so thank you very much for that thank you very much and of course if you do have more questions and if something wasn't that clear you're always welcome to contact me um, at this and in the app very good thank you so much listen Tune back in next Thursday when we release episode 6, our last episode for season 1, and invite Georgie Swallow and talk about cancer relapses, anxiety, and cancer thriving to the pod. Until next time, if you're currently going through cancer or have gone through cancer, or if you're a loved one of someone affected by cancer, make sure to download the app and connect with either Fabian or myself in the app. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 